When agencies enact new rules aimed at curtailing some aspects of the larger national economy, they can sometimes lead to conflicting impacts on federal contracting, both for the companies and the federal agencies. There are a couple of recent examples that I got the chance to discuss with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. We also got into what the fourth quarter could look like for contractors after the last one didn't perform as well as thought. Every year, of course, in July, we're beginning to think, okay, what does August and September look like? Agencies historically, and you can look at the data and it shows is every fourth quarter is usually the biggest quarter for contract obligations uh, in the federal government in almost every agency, uh, almost in almost every year. The things that set you up for this, though, is what's happened before you get to the fourth quarter, how much money is left. One of the things that we saw this year, FY23, was because appropriations occurred in December instead of March, OMB was able to issue money to the agencies in January or in some cases early February. So they were not as far into fiscal year 23 before they began having full access to their funding. So we saw a boom second quarter. In fact, in many agencies, it was the largest second quarter uh, on record. And and even the ones where it wasn't, there's usually a reason for it, like, you know, a giant F-35 uh, uh, lot buy in, in the first quarter instead of a second quarter for the Defense Department. So that led us to wonder, okay, will the third quarter also be a boom? Because if you've got a big second quarter and a big third quarter, there's just not as much left over for the fourth quarter. Well, we finally got good data for the third quarter for civilian agencies. We put it together last week at PSC. And then what we saw was third quarter was down a good bit, uh, not even as big as last year. Well, last year, of course, they didn't get their money until the third quarter in FY22. So it's not surprising that third quarter would be bigger than the second quarter. This year, they got their money in the second quarter. So the second quarter was bigger. What that tells us, though, is there's substantial funding remaining in most agencies uh, to obligate funds in the fourth quarter. So we'll probably be a, see a big fourth quarter. Uh, but there's a couple other factors I'll bring up if you'd like. Oh, yes, please do. So one is the uncertainty about not only whether we're going to start the fiscal year under a continuing resolution, but even what the level of that CR would be. You know, Eric, in in the last 20 or 25 years, every CR has pretty much been at the level of the previous year's uh, spending. Right. So you would you could plan on having FY 23 level funding come October 1st under a CR. You know, the appropriators say they're going to get their bills done by September 30th and we'll start the year on time. But 18 out of the last 20 or 19 out of 20 for some agencies, uh, it has started under a CR. We can sort of plan on it. We'll do it again this year. Um, But now there's more uncertainty as to the level. With House Republicans having already cut back on the, uh, the debt limit deal, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, uh, which originally set spending to be roughly equal to the 23 level for civilian agencies. Now they're saying, no, let's go back to the FY22 level. And even that's not distributed uh, in, in a, in a, uh, a butter slice, a peanut butter slice uh, uh, pattern across the agency. Some agencies getting much bigger cuts than others. So a CR at an FY23 level is not a guarantee. You could start a CR at a lower level. So that puts a premium on two things. Number one is obligating the money you have now in the fourth quarter and and plus starting uh, new programs so that they won't be new starts under a CR. But the second is if the money's not expiring, do you want to obligate it all now? Do you want to save some of it in case FY23 funding is even or CR funding is even lower than the FY23 level? Those are competing dynamics. We have no visibility into what the agencies are thinking or what their guidance is in the aggregate way. 
But those could have both a stimulating and a constraining effect on Q4 spending. So we'll be watching that very closely. And plus, it can vary from agency to agency, I imagine. Uh, tremendously, you know, and, and uh, um, what the needs are, what's ready to go. You've seen a lot of hiccups in uh, some of the government-wide acquisition contracts that uh, you know, agencies planned on having ready to go here. Polaris, CIO, SP4, these things are now, you know, being reworked and, and redone. So, uh, you know, the vehicles that agencies thought might be available by uh, September or August uh, are not necessarily available. So they've got to find other vehicles in place. Um, programs are not as ready to go as they might have been otherwise. A lot of constraining factors here. Nonetheless, we can expect it's going to be a very robust fourth quarter. Uh, We just can't tell exactly where and when. Speaking with David Berteau from the Professional Services Council, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, there are a lot of rules that come from the uh, FTC and SEC and even sometimes CFPB that many don't think would pertain to federal contractors. You know, they're mostly trying to take aim at other industries where they're seeing some shenanigans and stuff, but then end up having an effect on federal contracting. And we may have seen a couple come to the come to light uh, recently. And I was curious on if you could could tell me a little bit more about the P- uh, PSC stance on, you know, the merger guidelines that recently came from FTC and as well as the proposed cyber and climate disclosures from the SEC. That's a, it's really been a very interesting uh, and expanded dynamic for us uh, at the Professional Services Council, Eric. You know, we're very accustomed to providing comments on proposed changes to the federal acquisition regulation or the defense supplement, the DFARS, or other agencies, uh, each of whom have their own uh, acquisition regulations as well. That's something PSC has been doing for decades. Um, but in the last few years, we've seen a lot more uh, agencies that are not aiming necessarily at federal contracting or solely at federal contracting. But they'd have a big impact and they go through different procedures. You know, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the the FTC's new merger guidelines uh, last week. The White House had a big event on competition and they uh, issued these guidelines and asked for public comment on them. Fifty uh, something pages long. The guidelines really are, are how does the FTC look at whether a merger is something they're going to challenge and ask the Justice Department to, uh, to file a lawsuit uh, to prevent the merger from happening or to adjust or mitigate aspects of it. Um, and that's mostly aimed at the broader American commercial market or even the global marketplace. But it has big impact potentially on a lot of government contractors, right? Um, if you look at the, the basic dynamic of government contracting, if you start as a small business and then you grow out of uh, set-aside world, you've got to compete, but you're pretty small. So you're competing with a bunch of big guys. So you have to grow. And you can grow organically, but that's slow. Or you can grow by mergers and acquisitions, either buying or are being bought. So that dynamic is built into the ecosystem of government contracting, unless you want to stay small forever. And uh, and most companies do not. They, they would like to grow. They like to expand their business. They're in it for good reasons to support the missions, and, and they want to keep going. Uh, so all of that says that the FTC may have rules that are for the broader marketplace, but they'll have special impacts on government contractors who are already subject to a lot of additional rules, as you well know, that, you know, commercial companies are not subject to. We don't find that those agencies like the FTC or the Securities and Exchange Commission often think about this from the perspective of the government contractors. And, and we'll be, we'll be piling comments and getting input from our members on the FTC, uh, merger guidelines, but we'll also be looking, uh, and already have looked at some of the previous ones that you mentioned, the, 
SEC. Uh, there's also the, uh, the SEC climate uh, rules, the SEC uh, disclosures on cybersecurity, um, as well as the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission's um, uh, proposed rule earlier this year to ban non-compete clauses, which has some unique dynamics in government contracting business because you have to bid key personnel and oftentimes those bids have to last for months and months and months beyond when you thought you were going to get an award. So how do you keep those key personnel tied to your bid? If they're not there, you won't win. And if they leave and if they can leave and go to another company, boy, you're really in trouble with your bid at that point. Yeah. And in those agencies defense, you know, as somebody who covers this industry, even sometimes I look at a rule and go, oh, you know, that's not our story. That doesn't pertain to us. And don't even think like, oh, yeah, wait, there are a lot of mergers that happen in, in the contracting world, aren't there? <laughs> there are. And, and sometimes the FTC and the Justice Department weigh in on them. We had, you know, one last year that was uh, thrown out by the courts and, and got others that recently been thrown out by the courts. We track them mostly at PSC. We track the one ones that affect government contracting. But we like to look at the broader dynamic as well, because that can set the stage uh, for for other cases that will have an impact on us. All right. And the other ongoing topic that is big on in the D.C. area, particularly, is the debate uh, for the Senate's version of the uh, uh, fiscal year 24 National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, What are you hearing from folks as far as what could be on the cutting block or is there going to be even more money poured into the defense side of things, you know, as usual? Well, we've got a, a, a 60 year history. Of, uh, of Congress passing a National Defense Authorization Act every year. Not exactly on time. Oftentimes it's well into the fiscal year. December is a common date uh, that it ends up passing. Uh, but the stage this year has been set for a more complicated dynamic for two reasons. One, you know, the House did pass its NDA a couple of weeks ago uh, by a very slim margin. I think 219 to 210 was the, the final vote. And that's different than most National Defense Authorizations Acts, which tend to be passed with, uh, with substantial votes Votes from both Democrats and Republicans. This was mostly a Republican vote. I think 215 of the 219 were Republicans. Um, and it has provisions in it that are often left out of the NDAA, uh, social provisions, uh, you know, uh, provisions tied to abortion or transgender, et cetera, uh, that the defense bill gives you a good vehicle to go through now, but it sets up a different dynamic with the Senate. The Senate is wrestling with its own amendments. You know, today is Tuesday uh, as, as we broadcast this and the Senate's coming in today and they'll pick up some more amendments. We don't know how these are going to play out. You know, votes in the Senate are a little tricky to come by um, and we'll have a final piece here. But it is an interesting uh, situation in that this is not actually voting on passing the bill. It's voting on amendments to add to the bill. And so, you know, then the Senate, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Senate will proceed to passage of the final NDAA. So you may go into August recess with a lot of room for negotiations or very little room for negotiations. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, And of course, at at PSC, we often take positions uh, on controversial issues that will affect our our member companies and their contracting business. There are probably more issues this time that we'll have to pay attention to uh, than last year. David Berteau with the Professional Services Council. As always, thank you so much for the insight. My pleasure, Eric, and thanks for having us on. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today 
especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joins Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981. And you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, So I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me... Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.